glad you're here. I hope you like those seats. You might be in them for a while because of the snow. That's why I'm saying it. A couple of people are looking like, how long is he planning on going? <laughs> At any rate, um, glad that you're here this morning. I want to give you a little heads up before we jump into the message that after the service today, we're going to have a reception for Pastor Jed. Pastor Jed's been our worship pastor for the past four years. And if you were here last week, you saw that we prayed over him as he was taking a step into the next part of his journey. And he's still here. He was still here this morning. He's going to be part of our church and serving on our worship team. Uh, but it's not going to be serving as our worship pastor anymore. And so if you want to come over to our church office, um, you can get information about where that's located on your way out at the, either the first-time guest kiosk or the, the guest services uh, kiosk that's out there. Or ask anybody that has an I Can Serve badge on, and they'll be able to tell you where our office is at. Um, but just a way to encourage him, say some words to him if you want to, the way that he's in, helped you encounter God over the last four years, and, uh, and just be able to be a blessing to him. And we can hang out and get to know each other a little bit better, too. And uh, if you're new here to Southbridge, like Wendy was saying earlier, if you would, just take that little tear-off piece that's on the bottom of your worship bulletin today and fill that out. We've got a gift. In addition to the popcorn box you got on the way in, we've got a gift for you. And uh, we use you turning that card in as an excuse to give some money to another ministry as well. And so if you fill that card out, you actually have an impact in somebody's life, could maybe help rescue somebody from human trafficking. And so you can see some of that information, I believe, in your worship program as well. And today we're continuing our series in Mark. We started last week in Mark. We were looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And this week, this morning, we're going to be looking at verses is 9 through 20. So if you've got the new Southbridge app, if you don't have it, you can download it. Just type in Southbridge, Southbridge Church, whatever, on, at the iTunes or Google Play Store, wherever it is you get it. There's a Bible in there. You can turn there. Or if you have an old-fashioned copy like me, I'm old school, uh, use a paper Bible, uh, you can go ahead and turn there. It's a Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we'll jump into that message. I'm pray. Father, thank you that you've given us instruction uh, from you about how to encounter you and how to worship you and how to live this life uh, for you and for your glory. And I pray, God, that you would just uh, have your hand on our hearts as we open up your scriptures and that you'd speak to me uh, during this time. I pray that you'd give me the words to say to the folks that are here in Theater 9, that are across the hall in Theater 14, that may hear online at some point. And I pray for every heart that will hear these words, that they'd be exactly what you want them to know and hear and put into practice, that we wouldn't be foolish to just look at your word like it's a mirror and forget what we look like, but that we'd walk away and we'd be changed. God, I pray you'd pierce our hearts, that you'd use your word like a sword and you'd cut through everything that's in the way and you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I hope you had a great week. Isn't it crazy how the weather was yesterday versus how it is today? Uh, there are lots of things that have happened uh, over this past week. Uh, hopefully in your week, you've had more good things than bad things. And you see lots of stuff that happened in the news, uh, prisoners being released, different places, different things that are taking place. But one of the things that happened that maybe some of you saw, maybe some of you were a part of, was the uh, Powerball lottery that took place. $1.6 billion that was going to be given from that. Now, I'm not endorsing that. I'm not saying you should play it, but the reality is it happened. And so I was looking, and I saw there were some people that actually waited in line for over an hour to buy a ticket for a chance to win $1.6 billion. And I thought, I wonder what that's like. Like, you know how it is when you're in line at, like, you know, amusement park or whatever, and you keep walking past each other, seeing the same people? I wonder if they talk to each other. And I know that everybody who was buying a ticket probably thought to themselves what they would do if they won $1.6 billion, and maybe you think to yourself, well, what would I do? Besides build a church in Raleigh, what would you do? Why is that funny? <laughs> with $1.6 billion, what would you do with $1.6 billion? 
And you start thinking about that. Maybe you'd buy something for, you know, a relative that needs a house or pay off some debts or help somebody with some medical needs. Maybe you have a burden on your heart helping orphans or maybe you try and eliminate abortion here in the Wake County area or help people with human trafficking and something that maybe children in Bolivia that we try to sponsor and, and be a part of. You'd make a big dent in that. Well, I don't know. What would you do? And you start thinking through those things. And then I don't know if you saw, but there was one group of folks that were in New Jersey. They worked at a restaurant and they did an office pool, which I guess is where you put a whole bunch of money together and buy a bunch of tickets, and then if any of the tickets win, you just divide the, the money up. And so what they did is there's a video, it went viral, I don't know if you saw it or not, of people that were, there's, the guy reads off all six numbers, and all six numbers match, and then people start going hysterical, like about winning this, and going around hugging each other and crying. One guy quits his job, which is funny, right? There's an office pool, then I quit. I don't want anything to do with you people. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, he goes through this whole deal. But then what the true story was, what happened was they did have a ticket that had six numbers, numbers that match, but the ticket was for a different day <laughs> than the, the jackpot. So I didn't see a video of them finding out that information, but imagine how disappointing that was. And think about all the people that are playing this, and I don't know what it costs to buy a ticket. I don't know, a dollar, two dollars, if you know, pretend like you don't, three dollars to buy a ticket. But you pay two or three bucks, right? And you have a chance to win $1.6 billion. Now, I bet some people that play have a problem with gambling. They probably gamble on all kinds of stuff. But some people that play probably were just like, two or three bucks for a chance to win $1.6 billion? And they considered, I'll give two or three dollars for the chance to win this much money. And then here we are today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Let me tell you what's going to happen. is that Jesus calls these disciples to come follow him. And what he's calling them to give up when he calls people to follow him is everything. And so you've got to count the cost. And like the question said on the, the video they played right before I came up, is he worthy of everything? And you think about our lives here, and it seems like, well, that's, such a, that's a lot bigger deal than 2 or $3 for $1.6 billion opportunity. And I, I just want to ask you this question today. Is it? Because we know that the Bible says, God says about this life, that it's just a vapor. What is your life? It's just a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. We know the way that God accounts for time. He says that a thousand years is like a day. He's not slow in keeping his promises. He's patient. He wants everybody to turn to him. And we sing the song Amazing Grace periodically. And, and I don't know if you know the words. It's one of the most famous Christian songs. A lot of people that aren't even believers in Jesus, they know the songs. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So 10,000 years is like we just got started. And so you think about what God calls us to. He says, come follow me. It's going to cost you your life, everything. And he wants to save his life, will lose his life, 70, 80, maybe 100 years here on this earth. You give all that up. It seems like that's way more than 2 or $3 for a lottery ticket. But then you think about what you get. Eternity? So we're talking in billions. Hundreds upon hundreds of billions of years, and it'll be just like we just got started. And you're continuing to learn stuff, and you're continuing to grow, and you get to be with him. And you get eternal life, and you get abundant life. You get real joy. You get the satisfaction that many people think that they're going to get if they win that lottery. I think three people won. You get that. It's not a chance at it. It's a promise of it from Jesus. So the question you've got to ask yourself today is, it's kind of like the people that were making that decision, like two or three bucks to get a chance, but it's even better because it's just your life here at this world for something so much greater. But you've got to answer the question, is he worth it? And you've got to count the cost. And so what's happening here, Mark, we started last week. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we saw a unique man with a unique message on a unique mission in John the Baptist. He was paving the way for Jesus. 
And remember, he was preaching a message of repentance, and repentance, we saw, means not just a change of mind. You don't just think differently, but it's a whole change of your life, that you're headed in a direction, and you're trusting in something, oftentimes yourself, sometimes money, other people's opinions, all that stuff. But you've got to turn, and you've got to believe and trust in someone else since God. There's a way that seems right, but in the end, it leads to death. And so you turn on a different path, on God's path, and that's the message that John the Baptist was preaching. And he was talking about there's a guy who, who's, he's, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, he's so great. And then that guy shows up. His name is Jesus. And that's what we see in verse 9. Remember who Mark is writing to as well. Believers that are on the run, that are hiding from Nero, who's killing Christians. Some of them are being eaten alive in the Colosseum by lions. Some of them he's having burned alive to light his backyard while he has entertainment there. And some of them he's arrested and sent out into the streets and put animal skins on them and sent wild dogs after them to kill them like wild animals. And they're counting the cost. Is it really worth my life to follow Jesus? And this is what Mark writes. At that time, when John the Baptist was baptizing people, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. But you've got to ask yourself the question, why is Jesus getting baptized? Because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, meaning you're acknowledging your sin and you're no longer going to do that. You're going to turn to God. And Jesus doesn't need to repent because he's never sinned. What Jesus is doing is he's identifying with sinful people. He's saying this message that John is preaching is true and he's being an example. That even I, your Lord, have been baptized. You've got to be baptized. This is my follower. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You're fulfilling my mission. The father saying to the son. And then, in verse 12, at once the spirit was sent, on, sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days and being tempted by Satan... He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And that's all we get about the temptation of Jesus in Mark. If you want more about the temptation of Jesus, read Matthew's account or read Luke's account of this. Now, all Mark tells us is basically that it happened, and he wins. <laughs> and the point is this, that he's a sinless Savior that came for sinful people. And then we're going to focus in on uh, verses 14 through 20 today. After John was put in prison, John the Baptist that we just read about in verses 1 through 8, he confronted a guy who had the authority to put him in prison because of his adulterous, incestuous relationship and got married in an incestuous marriage. The guy got mad, puts him in jail, ends up having his head cut off. So the one guy that's preaching Jesus has gotten thrown in jail. That's not a great recruiting tool. Keep that in mind. Jesus comes proclaiming the good news of God. And then just to be clear about what he's preaching, verse 15, the time has come. He said, Jesus, the kingdom of God is near. Repent. Same message John the Baptist was preaching. Different methodology by Jesus. Same message. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Verse 17, here's the call. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And here's the promise. And I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. And then like a rerun, verses 19 through 20, just different guys here. Uh, when he had gone a little bit farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their nets, they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And so dad's there, there's some hired men there, there's some boats there, and these guys are leaving. And they're going to follow Jesus. And the way that Mark writes this, it almost seems like they hadn't met Jesus up until this point. Like Jesus just shows up, he's some random guy, he says, come follow me, and they leave everything and follow him. But we're going to see it a little bit. This isn't the first encounter they've had with Jesus. 
they're acquainted with Jesus. They've seen Jesus work. Some of them maybe even made a profession of faith in Jesus at this point. But what Jesus is calling them to now is a new commitment. Because when Jesus calls us to follow him, what he's calling us to is a new commitment. Some of you, it's just after the new year, and some of you made new commitments to God. Some of you need to make new commitments today. We had someone place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior last week at our service, and that is awesome. Some of you, you need to make that decision today. At the end of the service today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a new commitment to Jesus. Some of you need to make a new commitment to Jesus and follow Jesus as your Savior. Some of you need to make a new commitment to Jesus because something's been holding you back, or you've been holding something back, and it's time to surrender that to him. For some of you, it's just time to take the next step in your faith journey. Some of you need to make a, a recommitment, a new commitment to Jesus because you've gotten off track with him. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that at the end of the service. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he's calling us to a new kind of commitment. Try and imagine what it was like this day on the Sea of Galilee. They were out there fishing, just four guys. They're going to their job like they do every day. It's a beautiful day, uh, probably a lot like yesterday, uh, not today, <laughs> and a little bit warmer. If you have ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you know it's one of the most beautiful places on the earth. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that this is the pride of nature, the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't very big. In fact, we call it a sea, and the Bible calls it a sea, and local people call it a sea, but it's more like a lake. It's only uh, about seven miles wide, 12 miles long, and it was huge for fishing. Fishing was a big business back then. It was the primary meat that anyone would eat then. They didn't have steak dinners and burgers and all the stuff, the chicken that we eat. They would eat fish, and so it was big business. In fact, oftentimes when we talk about Peter and we talk about Andrew and we talk about James and John and these fishermen, we act like they're day laborers. But you can tell from this passage they're not. Uh, most people in this time were poor. About 70 to 90% of the population lived in poverty. Peter and Andrew didn't. Neither did James and John. In fact, you see they've got boats. There's multiple boats that are here. This is more of a fishing enterprise that's taking place. And there's hired men. They've got employees that are working for them in this industry. Fishing was big business, and they were successful at it. There were about 16 ports that were busy on the small lake that was there. There were hundreds of boats on the Sea of Galilee. And, and the land around it was all fertile because of the overflow of the sea. And so try and picture what the scene was like. As they're there, they're working. They've got their business, the industry's going, employees are working for them. There's multiple boats that are taking place. They're figuring out that last night wasn't a very good catch, we find out in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus is coming along and he's preaching. What is he preaching? Go back to verse 15. It says right there in verse 15 to me, real clear, Luke doesn't, or Mark doesn't give us a ton of details. He's really fast about the way he tells stories, but he tells us this detail that Jesus is preaching. The time has come. It's at hand, some of your translations say. The kingdom of God is near. So repent and believe. Same message you've been hearing from John the Baptist. But why? Because the, why today different than any other day? Because you're just at work. It's any other day. Why today? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Because the kingdom of God is near. What is he talking about when he says kingdom of God? Do you ever read your Bible and think to yourself, what is this kingdom language? That's weird. I don't talk that way. Why does the Bible say that? Does that mean heaven? Do you have to have some Bible degree to figure out this coded language? Because sometimes it seems like he's talking about one thing when he talks about the kingdom. Sometimes it seems like it's future. Sometimes he's talking about something else and he talks about it's now. Let me just tell you really clearly, you don't need a special degree for this. The kingdom of God in Mark, or the kingdom of heaven is the way that Matthew says it, is one kingdom. It's the rule and reign of God. And the kingdom's wherever God rules and reigns. 
There's one kingdom, but there's multiple aspects or dynamic elements to the kingdom of God. And so what you'll see is you'll read through the Bible, and you'll see that sometimes Jesus is talking about a spiritual aspect to the kingdom. So some Pharisees, some religious guys come to Jesus one time, and they're asking, when's the kingdom going to come? And in Luke chapter 17, he says, stop trying to read the newspaper and the YouTube videos and figure this out. Look what he says. He says, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Normal people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. It's because if God rules and reigns in your heart, then the kingdom of God is there. But, there's, but then you read more, and you're like, well, yeah, he's coming back, and so there's this other kingdom. What is he talking about? You get to Revelation chapter 20, and he talks about the millennial kingdom. He actually names a thousand-year rule and reign that he'll have. And then you see after Revelation, you see there's an eternal kingdom. It's all the rule and the reign of God. There are different aspects to the kingdom of God. And here you have the king, Jesus, coming, and of course the kingdom is near. He's here, and he's coming back. And he says here, that's why you should repent and believe. And so he's preaching this message. And we read and we find out in Luke that thousands upon thousands of people are coming. They're crowding around him so much. He ends up having to get in Peter's boat to tell this message. But he looks. Imagine you're Peter. Imagine you're Andrew. And he doesn't give a blanket call out to the thousands of people. He says, you, Peter, Andrew, come follow me. What would you do? Would you go? Would you leave everything? What does he mean when he says, follow me? Because this is not normal. Rabbis didn't do this. In this time, if you, it was not abnormal to follow a rabbi. It was kind of like how many people apply to go to college. But you sought out the rabbi you wanted, and then you applied, and then he did testing to see if you were equipped, if you were ready to be one of his students. What Jesus is doing here is radical, and it's different, because he's going out and he's picking his students, saying, hey, you're one, and you're one, you come. The only qualification to be a follower of Jesus was this. Not you passed some tests. You didn't have to know some lessons. There wasn't no Q&A. You had to be a sinner. Anybody here qualify? Some of us are perfecting it, right? Like we're getting it down. And so he calls Peter, who knows how sinful he is. We see in Luke chapter 5 because when he realizes who Jesus is, he falls on his face. Oftentimes we think when we come into contact with God that we treat him like he's our buddy. But he realizes his sinfulness and he's overwhelmed and he falls on his face. And then Jesus gives him comforting words, which we don't get. Mark doesn't give us the detail. He gives us comforting words and then he says, come follow me. Would you do it? And what does he mean? Well, focus on the second word in that command, follow me. Notice he's not saying, come follow my traditions. Follow my religion. He's not saying, come follow the man-made rules that come along with the traditions of men that we have that so many people in that time would be used to, and that's what they'd think of for religion. He doesn't say, come to my church. He doesn't say, come to my synagogue. He, he doesn't say, just show up at a thing. He says, you come follow me. He's promising himself as a person. You come follow, not my religion, not my traditions, not some theoretical, theological debate for you to have, not some ideology, not some ethical conversations to discuss, not some philosophy. You come follow me. Reminds me of when I came to Christ. I remember praying at the side of my bed, 18 years old. And uh, I hadn't studied everything. Like you get these, some of these really smart guys like Josh McDowell studied all these world religions, tried to disprove Christianity, Lee Strobel, all these dudes. And I thought, well, why should I do that? And it was like the Lord impressed upon my heart. Are you going to waste your life studying Buddhism and Muslim, Islam and all this stuff and waste your life doing all that? I'm giving you my son. He died for you. Jesus is saying, you come follow, you get me. So who is that? Who is that he's calling us to himself? Think about who Jesus is. Because the call to follow means to imitate. 
And so he's calling us to imitate him. He says, you get me. Who is he? Well, he just left heaven and came to this earth and then was tempted in the desert for 40 days. Mark doesn't tell us a whole bunch of details about this. Matthew and Luke tell us more. He didn't eat anything for 40 days. We see some of the specific temptations. And I just said to you, the point was, he's a sinless savior for sinful people. He was tempted every way that you've been tempted. For those 40 days and beyond, because the devil didn't leave him. He looked for more opportune times, Luke tells us. So he's experienced your temptations, but he's victorious over it. And then what he does throughout the scriptures, we oftentimes focus just on the cross. He lived a perfect life. That was essential. He lived a life you couldn't live, and so he died the death you deserve to die because of your sins. He lived to the point of obedience to the Father and the Father's mission. He's faithful when we're unfaithful. He became so obedient, it was to the point of death. You know what that is? That's commitment. That's the ultimate commitment. He'd give it all. But Philippians chapter 2 tells us he didn't just become obedient to death, he became obedient to death on a cross. That was the worst kind of torture that was known to man at that time. To die on a tree was considered to be a curse, and he was cursed, cursed by God, cursed because of our sins. The wrath of God was poured out on him. He was committed to you. And what he's calling us to when he calls us to follow him is a commitment to him. And for many of us, it's a new commitment. That's what he was calling these guys to. And it says, verse 18, should blow our minds. Verse 18 says that what happened, right after he says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, it says verse 18, at once. Not, let me pray about it. <laughs> Can I see the contract? Where are we headed? At once. They left their nets. When they left their nets, what that symbolized was all their security, life as they knew it, their comfort, their, the fishing, the enterprise that they had there, the whole industry. They're walking away from their family. They're walking away from everything. And so the question is for us, would we, what would we do? And, and our tendency is to do this, is to say, would I be willing, willing to do it? Now, would you actually do it? Like, forget that. I think what we do oftentimes is we water stuff down and we kind of, we take the edge off of the message that Jesus actually preaches by saying, well, if he, if he actually did ask for all my money, then I, I'd give it, I would, but he hasn't asked. If he asked me to go be a missionary, then I would, but, but he didn't, so. And we make it like, it's not really that big of a deal. And so just for a couple minutes today, just, just, I know that after the service, some of you are going to go over to Jad's reception. Some of you are going to go to lunch with people. Some of you are going to think about getting a movie. Hopefully the snow goes away. Like, you know, lots of stuff's going to happen. You're going to do projects around your house. But just pause and for like 10 minutes with me, just ask yourself this question. What if he means this stuff? What if Jesus is serious? What if he really asks you to do this? Because the Jesus of the Bible does. And so if you read through the Bible, what you'll see is the Jesus we oftentimes talk about is quite a bit different than the Jesus that we see and encounter in the Bible. And you've got to ask yourself the question, which one are you following, those of you who claim to be followers, and those of you who are not yet followers, will you follow this Jesus? Because if you follow a Jesus that you've made up in your own mind, you're going to be very disappointed at the end of your life. Because when you encounter this Jesus, very likely what's going to be said is, you might have called that guy Jesus, but away from me, I never knew you. And so what if when Jesus says these commands, come follow me, I want everything, because he says it that clearly and that plainly, by the way. Luke chapter 14 and verse 33, after he talks to people about counting the cost, you've got to consider who it is that's calling you here. He says, in the same manner, any of you 
not just Peter, not just James, not just John, not just Andrew, not just these four guys, anybody, anybody for all time who does not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. So what if he means that stuff? And what if the Jesus that we worship oftentimes, that we make up, that's real comfortable with our lives, that kind of wants to help us fulfill our dreams, is not actually the Jesus that we see described in the Bible, but is an American version that we've made up. I love what David Platt says in his book, Radical. He talks about this, about twisting what's true about Jesus to fit our lives, and then we end up worshiping a different Jesus. He goes on to say that when we sing songs, many of us were actually singing to ourselves because we've made a Jesus in our image. But he talks about the Americanized Jesus, and he says this, He's a nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that doesn't infringe on our comforts because after all, he loves us just the way we are. And so we say these nice sentimental things that are like partially true about Jesus and then we start putting in the stuff that we want to be true about Jesus and before you know it, we're not worshiping Jesus. We're just calling him that. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced. He never says that, by the way, in the Bible. And who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. He also doesn't say that. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. What if that Jesus isn't real? He's a product of our imaginations. And the Jesus who's real is the one who says in the scriptures, the same thing he says here to Peter and to Andrew, he says to you and to me. Because later, and we're going to get to this in this series, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, he says, if anyone to the crowds... Anybody throughout history for all time, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost your life. He says later, if you're not willing to lose your life, you will not save your life. And he says, what does it do? What good does it do you to gain not $1.6 billion, the whole world? That's not even Donald Trump kind of wealth. Like that, that's Alexander the Great of this generation. If you had the whole world, but it's only for 50, 60, 70, 100 years. If you forfeit your soul, you've got to count the cost. You've got to ask yourself the question, is he worth it? And what if he actually means this stuff? What if he means it? Because I think there are a lot of people in Jesus' day that we'd be surprised at how he responded to them. Because we act like, well, if you want to, anybody wants to come to church, just come to church. We're glad you're here. And you know why we do that? Because we want them to hear about the real Jesus. But people came to Jesus, they wanted to follow him, and they probably had the, I'm willing, I'd be, if you asked, then I would. But Jesus knows our hearts. And we oftentimes say that like, well, he knows my heart, he knows my good intentions. Well, no, he also knows your idolatry. And he confronts that because he wants everything. So in Luke chapter 9, you can read this on your own, 57 through 62, he's got multiple people, and the theme is following him, following him, following him. What does it mean to follow him? Well, read Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. And put it up on the screen. What it said, there's three different people that come to him. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll do like Peter and Andrew. I'll do like James and John. I'll come with you. But Jesus knows his heart. So look what he says. Foxes have holes. He knows this guy loves comfort. And birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You think about that for a little while before you so eagerly come and follow me. Count the cost. And then Jesus calls the next guy. The first guy volunteered. Jesus calls this guy. He said to another man, follow me. This guy knows what it means. But instead of doing what Peter and John and James and Andrew do and at once leave their nets, look what he says. But Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus could seem so cold-hearted as what he says next. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. You preach the message that I'm preaching. You're going to be my follower. You imitate me. You preach the same message. What the guy was actually saying was, 
It's the kind of person that says, I'll, I, I plan on getting right with God. I plan on being serious with him someday. When? Not today. But like, someday. And Jesus was saying, you don't want to follow me. Don't kid yourself. He's turning away followers. And then there's another guy. There's a third guy. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus doesn't hate families. But look what he says next. No one who's put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In other words, I want everything. If you're not all in, you're not in. I want it all. What if he means that? I saw a story this week of a guy in South Korea came to Jesus, became burdened for the people in the Middle East, was a really sharp guy, spent some years of his life trying to learn some of the Middle Eastern languages so he could go there and tell people the gospel. He went there, started working for an agency from America as an interpreter. So he could help people that were doing business deals and were traveling, uh, leaders, all kinds of different folks, knowing that the people in the Middle East hated the gospel. And he would, he would translate their business deals and all that stuff, and he'd also share Jesus with them. He ended up getting arrested, getting his head cut off. And you've got to ask yourself, from the world's perspective, what a wasted life. Because this is a smart guy. He could have used that intelligence. He could have stayed comfortable in his home country in South Korea. He could have, you know been there and got a nice job, even a nice job at a church. And did he waste his life? Or did he know something that most of us overlook, that Jesus actually meant what he said? In Mark chapter 8, right after that verse I said about denying yourself, taking your cross and following him, in verses 35 and 30 through 37, he says this, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? And then when it's all said and done... What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Maybe he knew that and he believed that Jesus actually meant it. Because most of us, let's be honest, when we think about a commitment to Jesus, we think, well, I go to church. There's an hour a week. I attend a service. And if you're like a really committed Christian, maybe you're more moral than some other people. Maybe you don't use, use like the mainline swear words, but once you get discipled, you start learning the other swear words, right? The Christian ones. If you didn't know this existed, just ignore that. But if you're like real committed, maybe you go to a Bible study during the week or a small group. You don't watch certain shows and you watch other shows. Is that really what Jesus means when he says he wants everything from you? So not are you willing to give up all your money, but would you actually write the check? Not are you willing, if God were to call, to go on the mission, will you really go? Would you, if he told you to learn some languages so you could share the gospel with some people? Well, I'm not natural at that. No, no, don't explain all this stuff. Would you do it? Because notice here in this text, he doesn't say to Peter and Andrew and James and John, by the way, let me tell you where we're going. We know they don't know later because when Jesus starts talking about himself being betrayed by the elders and the chief priests and being crucified, Peter says, no, you're not going there. He says, get behind me, Satan. And what we see is he's continually working with us. It doesn't mean they had it all figured out, but it, would you go? What if it means that he leads you to illness? What if it means that he leads you to foreign missions? What if it means that he leads you to just being faithful, nothing grandiose, being faithful with what he's already entrusted you with for the rest of your life? Would you do it? What if he means this stuff? And the question you've got to ask is, is he worth it? The same as the people that are buying those lottery tickets. It's worth it for a chance. Well, is Jesus worth it? The Jesus who came here was victorious over every sin that you've ever been tempted with. Is he worth it? Is the Jesus who lived the life you couldn't live, died the death that you deserve to die, is he worth it? I was talking to somebody this week who blew it in sin. 
And uh, we were talking, they've made a profession of Jesus. And I said, well, you're a Christian. And the response back to me was, but I'm not like Jesus. And I said, wait, wait, wait. But you've got to understand, when God looks at you, you are. Because the significance of what Jesus did when he lived that perfect life, and not just when he died on the cross, but what happened at the cross was when you come to the cross and you make that commitment to him, there's an exchange. So what God sees is that perfect life. He sees the righteousness of Jesus when he looks at you. So every time you failed and every time you were unfaithful, he looks, he sees Jesus when he overcame the very sins you were tempted with. Is that Jesus worth it? And so you see what these men do. Verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him. And then verse 20, without delay, he called them and they left their father. Peace out, dad. They left their boat, done with the business. And the hired men and the employees and all that stuff, and they, they left. Would you leave? Would you leave your reputation? Would you walk away from your job if he called? Would you do it? Because he might really be calling you to that. It's a new commitment. For some of you, you need to make a new commitment today. But not only do you make a commitment, he makes a commitment to you. Read the second part of the verse. Not only does he, when he calls us to follow him, does he call us to a new commitment, but he also calls us to a new identity. In verse 17, it said, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Notice it doesn't say there, Come follow me, and then you need to try really hard to be a fisher of men. Come follow me, and you need to learn the discipline of evangelism. You need to learn the discipleship program that your church puts into place. He says, Come to me, and I, he's the one who's doing the work. He will do a work. I will make you. It's not just what you do. It's something you are. In fact, the Greek is more nuanced than the NIV says right here. It's I will make you become. The word's not there, but it's there in the Greek, in the original language. It's there. I will make you become. This is who you are, fishers of men. So when Jesus calls us to follow him, he doesn't just call us to a new commitment. He calls us to a new identity. And he's the one who does the work. It's that ver I quote to you all the time, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. When Paul's writing to the believers, he's writing to believers and their leaders in Philippi. He says, he who began a good work in you, he began the work at the point of salvation. He's going to be faithful until, well, guess what? His kingdom comes. Until you die or he comes back and his kingdom is inaugurated for eternity. He's going to do a work in you. It's not instantaneous, but he will do this work in you. And so some of you, when you hear that, you're like, oh, I could never be, God could never use me, and I'm so bad. We were, I was talking to our staff this week. We, so we had this gentleman that came to church. I haven't met him yet. If you're here today, I'd love to meet you in person. But this guy that said that he trusted Jesus as a Savior last week. So you think about all we had going on last week. We had our groups expo, people getting connected in groups. We announced Pastor Jed was taking a new job. We launched our new church app. And then we had this guy trust Jesus when we started this new series in Mark. I think it's awesome. I shared with you that I think it's going to be a great year. I think it's just another sign that it's going to be a great year. And we were talking about this guy and what it meant that he placed his faith in Jesus. And I shared with our staff uh, two verses I share. I think every time that someone trusts Christ, I go to the same two verses. Luke chapter 15, verses 7 and 10. It says that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. And so it's the same verse twice in the Bible. So God does it twice. So I think I'm just going to keep using the verse over and over again. Uh, I just use it all the time when somebody trusts Christ, but I hadn't thought a lot about it before, of what does that rejoicing look like in heaven? And I told the staff, I said, I wonder, I said, I've always just thought, so you see someone come to Jesus, and they place their faith in Jesus, and then heaven just outbursts with joy, and maybe songs get sung, and it's kind of just this outburst of thing, but I said, I wonder if it's more. And we know the angels don't know what it is to be saved. They, they don't know what it's like to have been lost and then be found, but all the redeemed people there do. And I wonder if any of those people, when they see people come to Christ here on earth, if they reflect on their own salvation, 
And what we started to do as a staff is we started to each person share about when we had placed our faith in Jesus, when we made that commitment to turn our lives, to turn from our own way and to turn to Jesus. And if you look at our staff page on our website, you'll see there's the male and female, and there's younger and there's older. And then what you might not see by just looking at the picture you can't see is that some people trusted Jesus when they were little kids, and then some people trusted Jesus more recently, and some people were kind of in the middle. And so we're all telling our stories about when it was that we came to know Jesus, and some people are getting emotional. But one person said a statement that stuck out to me. They said, um, when I came to Jesus, all I could think was, I'm not worthy. Remember the qualifications to follow Jesus? You're a sinner. Well, you did that. And uh, she was very aware of that as she was sharing these things. And and oftentimes what we do is we tend to dwell on that, the sinfulness that we have when we come to the cross. But I was reading this week, uh, Charles Spurgeon, old Baptist preacher, was preaching this very passage of scripture. And I loved what he said, so I'm just going to read it to you. He says, when Christ calls us by his grace, we ought not only remember what we are, sinners, but what we also ought to think of, what he can make us. Oh, you who see in yourselves at present nothing that is desirable. Come you and follow Christ for the sake of what he can make out of you. Do you not hear his sweet voice calling to you and saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? I'll transform you. And so he, he changes your life. Let me tell you something about a changed life. A changed life means a changed mission. When he changes your life, he doesn't just change something you don't swear as much or you're a nicer person or you start going to a service you didn't used to go to. No, he changes you in the, at the core of who you are. He changes your purpose for being. He changes the meaning of your life. He changes the mission that you're on. He changes everything about you. He changes your desires, your will. He gives you different gifts. But for all of us, we end up on the same mission. It just looks different for each of us because each of us are unique like we talked about last week. And so here he says to these guys, probably because of their job, I'll make you fishers of men. But what you don't see here is there's an Old Testament background to this as well. And so if you read in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Habakkuk, what you'll see is that God uses the imagery of fishing as an outpouring of his divine judgment on people. And so what Jesus is doing, he's putting a positive spin on this and saying, hey, you used to gather fish together in your net. Now I'm going to have you gather sinners together with the message that I give you. The message that the king has come and it's time to repent and to turn to him. It's a unique message and you're on a unique mission. The uniqueness of the message is you call out people's sin and no one wants to talk about their sin, but it also gives them a solution to it, which is me. And you call them to come follow me just like you came and followed me. And so you become a rescuer of people. Because remember what it is to follow him is to imitate him. And so what's his mission? Well, he said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, for the son of man was sent for what reason to seek and save that which was lost. And so just like you go searching around, if you lost your wedding ring, if you lost some money, if you had all six matching numbers on the right day for $1.6 billion, you'd look for that ticket. And Jesus is looking for the lost people that will turn to him. And he sends us on the same mission. And so in John chapter 20, verse 21, he says, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And he says to a group of zealots, guys that care way too much about politics, some people that are fishermen, some tax collectors, and Acts 1.8, he says, and you will be my witnesses, and I'm going to give you the power to do it because I'm going to change you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, everywhere I send you and everywhere you go, you will be my witnesses. And that's what he's saying to each one of us because a changed life means a changed mission. So what does that mean? Let me just pause because this might be the most important thing some of you have ever heard about your job. It means that just like he says to Peter and John and Andrew and James, he's saying to you, hey, you're a lawyer. You're not a lawyer anymore. 
you're my representative in the legal system. Hey, you're a doctor, you're a nurse. No, 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 you're Christ's ambassadors in the hospital system to your patients, to your coworkers, to the insurance companies that you deal with. Hey, you're a, you're a pastor? No, you're not just supposed to be a nice guy. You're my messenger to my people. You're a stay-at-home mom? No, 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 you're an evangelist to those three kids that you're talking to continually about picking up their mess. You're not a teacher anymore. You're my representative in the public school system. You're, you're not just a waiter or waitress or a barista. Every person I bring to you, you're to be a flesh example of Jesus Christ to that table who didn't come to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. You are my messengers. And we could do this all day. You work for the sanitation system. You work for the government. You work for the postal system. You're a UPS guy. You work at Amazon.com. You started your own company. No, your company is a platform for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are gather together as many sinners as you can while you're still here on this earth. I've given you your place. I've given you the people. And it's going to look different for each person. But it's the same mission. And I change your life. I'm going to change your mission. I'm going to give you a new identity. One of the worst things that's ever happened to the church is that somebody said that evangelism is a gift. It is not. If you'd like to discuss that, you can email me, and we can talk about any Bible passage you'd like to talk about. The best passage you could bring to me would be Ephesians chapter 4. That's an office. It's not a gift. Evangelism is not a gift. It's a responsibility. It's part of who we become as followers of Jesus, and it looks different for each one of us. I was talking to the guy who led me to Jesus. Best evangelist I've ever met. Happens to be employed as an, etern as an attorney. But I think he shares the gospel with everybody he meets. He tells me it's probably about 10% of the people that he meets, but it seems like it's everybody. And so we were talking, having breakfast. He was here to see some of his grandkids a couple of weeks ago, and we got together uh, early one morning to not take away time from his family and just had breakfast together. And we were talking, and I said, tell me about some of the people that you've led to Jesus recently or are sharing Jesus with right now. And he started to tell me it was different for each person he was talking to. And so as an attorney, he does estate planning. He said he had a woman come in. She was uh, about 50 years old, and she just found out she had ALS. And he sat down with her and he pulled out this little booklet that explains the perfect life that Jesus lived and how he lived the life we couldn't live and that he died the death that we deserve to die. And then at the end it talks about how it says in Romans that the gift of God is eternal life. And he offers this gift and this woman prayed to receive Jesus as her savior in his office. And so we rejoiced. And then he told me about another guy he goes to a restaurant he goes to regularly. His name was Terrence and Terrence was a big burly guy. He said with tattoos and body modifications, big beard and came over to his table. And, and what he oftentimes does when he's at a restaurant is he says... Is there anything we can pray for you about? We're going to pray for our food a little bit. Would you like us to pray for you? My wife and I do this. I'll tell you from experience. Sometimes people say, nope, <laughs> and that's the end of that conversation. But sometimes they open up and they share stuff. And so this Terrence guy, big dude, starts talking about his mom and some difficulty that his mom's going through. And so what my friend Mike and his, the friends that he was there with said, he said, hey, let's put some money together and we'll give it to him, not the tip. Like, we'll do this money's for his mom. And after we're at the end of the meal, they said, hey, I'm going to give you a tip, and then give you this little booklet that tells you about hiking a relationship with Jesus, but uh, this money's for your mom. Gave him an envelope. The guy started weeping. A few months later, he sees Terrence in there. Terrence says, hey, you're that guy! Gives him a big bear hug. You know, he's all excited about it. Uh, Terrence hasn't trusted Jesus yet, so he said, yeah, but he said, that's the best thing that's ever happened in this restaurant. What Mike was doing was not being a nice guy, being friendly, making people think he's generous. He's being a fisher of men as a lawyer who lives in a different state than us. He does it different than some of us. In fact, there's a lady in our church. We challenge all of our members to have at least one person you're praying will come to Christ. The lady in our church last week, she and her husband own a business. One of their friends, they've used their business as a platform. One of their friends is going through some difficulty in life and through their relationship they've had, through their business and common interest, she went over to his house and led this guy to Jesus. Different for her than it was for Mike. 
the guy that came to our church last week, I bet you somebody invited him. I bet you somebody probably shared the gospel with him before he came to church. It's different for them. For some of you, the way it looks like is giving them a little booklet when you go to a restaurant and some, a nicer tip than you probably naturally give. For some of you, it means sharing a book with someone saying, we'll talk about this later. For some of you, it's while you're working out with someone, you talk about the gospel. For some of you, it's you show how Jesus changed your life and you, you share that through a relationship and a friendship. And for some of you, it's with your kids. And for some of you, it's with your neighbors. For some of you, you're not very good at saying stuff. And so you write a letter to someone that you care about and explain to them the relationship you have with Jesus. But the mission is the same for all of us. That's what he does. He gives us a new identity. What does it look like for you? He calls us to a new commitment. And what commitment does he want you to make? In a moment here, the worship team is going to come. I'm giving you an opportunity to make a commitment to him. Some of you might need to do like that guy did last week at our church where you begin a relationship with Jesus and make a new commitment to him. For some of you, you've been walking with Jesus for a while, but it's time for you to take the next step in your faith journey. Some of you maybe made Jesus into somebody he's not, and you're not really following Jesus. You've deceived yourself, and it's time to deal with that. You need to make a commitment to the Jesus of the Bible. For some of you, it's time for you to make a recommitment. Maybe you committed to him, but just something happened. You've gotten distracted. Maybe you've been holding stuff back. Maybe stuff's been holding you back. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a commitment to him as we wrap up this service. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, I look at what happens here in this passage. We don't oftentimes do an invitation where we invite you to come down here on Sunday morning. Some of it's our environment and the way that it is. But I look at what these guys did in this passage. And Peter and Andrew and James and John, they literally took a step out and they follow Jesus. And so I want to challenge you today, if God's calling you to make a commitment to him to actually get out of your seat and come down here, you can just, the front rows are open. They're oftentimes open at church, in case you didn't know that. You go to a sporting event, everybody wants to be in the front. You go to church, everybody wants to be in the back. But if God's working in your heart, we're going to sing a song that says the words, I surrender all. Don't just sing those words. Like, don't just... Like the beat sounds good or the guitar's nice today and so you kind of get into the melody and you just start singing. Think about what you're saying. And if you need to do that today, then I just want to challenge you to come down here. You can sit in one of these seats. No one's going to pester you or bother you. I or one of our leaders might come up to you and say, would you like to pray? And if you don't want to pray with somebody, just say, no, I'm good. And you can do business with the Lord. But if you want to pray with someone, we want to be available to do that with you. And so I just challenge you. Let's all stand together right now. And if you're maybe, maybe you're in the middle of the room and you come up with lots of reasons why you wouldn't come down here. But I want to challenge you to just say, excuse me, excuse me, I'm going to step out. And you just come down here. We have people come down here in the first service, make various decisions for Jesus. If you're across the hall in Theater 14, you're watching the video of this, feel free to go down in the front. There are people over there that will come and pray with you if you'd like to pray with someone. But don't just sing these words mindlessly. And don't just make up a Jesus. Ask yourself the question, am I following Jesus? Would I really give him everything? And we're going to sing this song.